Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. Today, a special edition of the show, and to indicate that, let's throw our format out the window and fade this music out. Lovely. Uh, Now, some of you may know that I am something of a prolific podcaster, uh, and on one of my other shows, The Modern Man, uh, M-A-N-N, it's a pun on my name, uh, I go out and meet fascinating people out of the public eye who can tell us something about our modern world. Uh, The format is still available to option if you do work in telly. Uh, Anyway, occasionally we do interviews that I think you, the media savvy type, would really enjoy. Um, So previously, for example, I spoke to a former journalist about what it's like working for Russia today. I met the obituary writer of The Times. And I spoke to warm-up legend Andy Collins about how to whoop a TV audience into a frenzy. Um, All of those well worth a listen. Modernmanwith2ends.co.uk But on this week's show, I had the pleasure of talking to a former BBC camera operator called Paul Lambert. And that is the interview we're going to play for you today. You've probably not heard of him. You may have heard of his alter ego, Gobby. Gobby got his name basically by shouting at politicians as they came and went from Downing Street. And in this exclusive edit of the interview, we will hear how often that caused friction with his bosses at BBC News. You'll hear me ask him about the class bias in the media today and how he changed the working practices of correspondents and news producers forever before he left the BBC to become a communications director for UKIP. Here it is. Enjoy. I actually started many, many years ago as an electrician on the floor at the television centre, just setting lights for Top of the Pops and all of that sort of thing. And then I made my way through from electrician to sound recordist on news. Then I went to Westminster and they brought in a thing called multi-skilling, which was where I was a cameraman stroke producer. Did you ever harbour ambitions in that direction then? Not really until I, until I got there. And I suppose really one of my big breaks was when Blair first got elected in where I met probably the man that was probably the best politician that was never a politician. Who was? Alistair Campbell. I got sent down the day after the election to just get the shot of Blair coming out of number 10 and Blair opens the door, comes out, starts walking and there's all the camera crews following behind him and I'm just standing behind the railings in Downing Street getting this one shot when Alistair who I'd come to know on the campaign came over and said well come on then Paul what are you doing 
come with us. And I literally had Blair's point of view shot all the way down Whitehall till we get to the House of Parliament he walks in. So you were behind him, literally walking behind him? I had his eye view in my lens. And was that something that the previous government, John Major's government, they'd never thought to do a shot like that? Alistair was friendly towards the lower people in the media. I know for a fact he gave some correspondents some very hard times. But to me, he was always very, very friendly. And so what was your job at that point in 1997? My job at that point really was to get shots, get something different that a, a main camera crew wouldn't be getting. Just try and liven things up a little bit. But you were stationed on Downing Street? You'd get sent to Downing Street or you'd get sent, if they were short of camera crews and they needed a shot of a minister coming out of a building somewhere, you'd get, oh, go and stand around the home office for a couple of hours, see if you can get a shot of whoever the home... Home Office Minister was at that time. It's a weird thing, isn't it? Because in a way, a shot of what is normally a middle-aged white guy from behind walking into a building looks much the same as it did the week before. And yet people want the fresh shots because any little detail of it could be telling the story. But that was a really, really good grounding for what I went on to do. Because I'd, I'd, I'd be hanging outside the front of the Home Office or the Foreign Office or Department of Health... And you'd see people going in and out. And because you were there so often, people would sort of... You'd sort of start, oh, hello, how are you? And they'd sort of start coming to talk to you. And that made life a lot easier because all of a sudden you'd say, oh, any idea when the Home Secretary's coming out? Oh, they'll be out in 20 minutes. Well, to be fair, you could always go and get a coffee then because you know they're not going to be out, out for another 20 minutes. So you've got 10 minutes to go and get a coffee. The funny thing is... You'd got to know who you could trust and who you couldn't trust. The nicest people were the people that would say, I just can't tell you at the moment. Then you knew something was up. You knew there was a problem. <laughs> and you knew you had to go hunting a bit harder. I'd made friends with Shuri Blair during the early years of the Blair campaign. And we'd got a bit of a personal relationship in that she knew who I was. I knew she was the Prime Minister's wife. And we got... You know, quite friendly. I don't know. I can't imagine. So, I mean, you're basically camped outside her house. How's that the grounding for a good relationship? <sighs> there was a very, very silly occurrence in Downing Street one day in that Cherie came out in the early years and she had a little silver mini metro and she used to go to work as a lawyer. Go into the car and it wouldn't start. So the battery was nearly there, but it wasn't quite there. And I was still a cameraman at the time. And I said, can I help? She said, oh, it won't start, it won't start. I said, hang on a minute. Jumped over the barrier, managed to get in the car, managed to get it started. <laughs> she went, oh, thank you very much. I said, tell him to buy you a new battery. She said, he won't, he's too tight. And off she went. And she, But they were the sort of relationships that you managed to build up with people. I, I've never seen Cherie Blair's Mini Metro on the news. So is that just parked slightly off where the cameras are allowed to point? What's the deal there? The, there is a deal in that private cars you don't, you don't film it, it there's another there's another deal as well in that if you notice on all the news pieces the um registration numbers of the cars if they are in shot are blurred out mm. that's a security thing mm. and we all abide by it in the later years we we're at a conference in i think it was brighton mm -hmm. and i noticed that sheree had 
a book signing. And it was about the time when the entire cabinet had endorsed uh, Gordon Brown as the next leader of the Labour Party, apart from one man, by the way, John Road. And I just thought, what, what Cherie thinks? So I just grabbed one of our camera crews and went up to the book signing. And Cherie said, um, hello, how are you? I said, all right, Cherie. I said, how are you? I said, what are you going to do when Tony gives up? She said, darling, that's a long way in the future. <laughs> Luckily, she didn't say it to anyone else that day. And didn't talk to anyone else that day. And that made the front page of seven national newspapers. Did you so know as soon as you heard that, that's a news line? I knew immediately. I'm not so sure my news editor knew because I came back and he said, um, I said, oh, I've got a clip with Cherie. She said, Tony's not giving up for a long time. Oh, yeah, throw it in the box with the other tapes. We'll have a look at it later. And I thought, hmm, I think it's worth a bit more than that. One of my friends, her boyfriend, happened to be one of the reporters on PA, which is the Press Association. And I said, um, can you contact your boyfriend? I've got tape I want to show him. Just we'll see what he thinks. Come and listen to it in one of our suites. And he said, uh, yeah, can I write that up? I went, yeah, go on then. I think I got the interview at about half ten, eleven. It made PA by about 12. It was the lead star in the one o'clock news all of a sudden. So maybe the BBC needed to trust its own journalists more than it trusts the Press Association sometimes. When did you start seeing yourself as a journalist? I'm not sure I ever saw myself as a serious policy journalist. I'd see myself more as a tabloid journalist that happened to work for the BBC. And there's not very many of those, is there? I think I mean, it's something the BBC's frightened of. I actually think the BBC's frightened of breaking stories. The BBC's quite frightened, it seems to me, of populism, really. I mean, it, not in entertainment, but I mean, well, I say not in entertainment, look at what happened with Jeremy Clarkson. It, it doesn't like figures that seem to be with a finger on the populist pulse. It doesn't like figures that don't cow down to the BBC's ethos. A story, again, that happened at conference. This was actually at Blair's last conference. Bill Clinton had come over. Clinton is probably the most charismatic man I've ever met. Mm. Anyway, um, Blair did his big speech, and I've positioned myself with a camera crew on the way where all the dignitaries walked back, and I was a live camera again for the BBC's news channel, as it was then. I happened to see Clinton walking back, so I just shouted out, Oi, Bill, you're going to miss Tony. And he came over and started telling us stories about himself and Blair and how he enjoyed it, which an absolute coup for the news channel. Hold on. At what point do you think it's appropriate when your footage is being beamed live to the news channel to say, Oi, Bill, to a former president of the USA? That's exactly what I got from the BBC. I think it's appropriate to say, Oi, Bill when it means he's going to come over and talk to us. If I'd have said, excuse me, President, do you think you'd like to have a word with the BBC? Do you think you'd have come over? I don't. Is that how you started getting your nickname, Gobby? That's exactly how I got my nickname. There was one at uh, one of the budget statements. Um, George Osborne was just about to leave and he's up there holding the box up and it was when money was a bit short. So I just shouted out, any money in the box, Chancellor? <laughs> Which made all the, all the cameramen laugh, and I think it even got a chuckle out of Osborne at the time. Is that what you're looking for? 
A reaction. You're looking for a reaction. There, there are some shouts that you want as stoppers. When, when you want to stop someone dead and they've <laughs> got to answer it. Is a stopper like, are you going to resign, Prime Minister? Or is that... Because you know when you ask that, they're going to carry on walking. They're not going to stop. Uh, there's probably one about money. Like, did you really embezzle that money? It would be something that someone's got to react to. Or I guess in budget terms, like, you know, I don't know, are you stealing from the children or yeah. whatever? are you stealing from the children? Some, something that someone's got to react to. Well, how did you feel when you were asking those questions? It, be- all, it all depends what sort of relationship you had with people. Like, I can always remember a very early morning doorstep with a former Home Secretary, Charles Clark. Mm-hmm. I'd had the privilege of having a chat with his chauffeur before he picked <laughs> That's Charles Clark That's a sentence you very often. Who <laughs> happened to tell me that Mr Clark had been offered his resignation to Blair the night before. And you got that information from the chauffeur? I got that from the chauffeur. Before anybody else? I don't think... Well... Obviously, Blair knew. Yeah, well, Charles yeah. Clark knew, I didn't mean literally anybody else. Any other journalist, any, yeah. Well, there wasn't any other journalist there at six o'clock in the morning. Charles Clark comes out of his house. And it was a question that I thought might be a stopper, but it turned out not to be. But it did make the headline of the six o'clock news that night. When I just asked Charles Clark whether he'd still be Home Secretary that night. Okay, so that's a classic one. And he wasn't. You're basically responsible for that, aren't you? I don't remember before you the thing of, are you still going to be Home Secretary this evening, Mr. Clark, being a thing you saw in a clip on the 6 o'clock news. Whereas now, and it's become something the political correspondents themselves do, isn't it? It's the scripted part of the piece. Like, they start with a clip of the political correspondent outside saying, how are the Brexit negotiations going, Prime Minister? And you know they're going to walk past and not say anything, but it's become it's become an essential part of the news package. That's your yeah, fault. But, 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 the, <laughs> but the unfortunate thing with it is... They can't afford to upset the ministers. I don't need to get the next interview. Actually, I won't get the next interview, so so I can upset them. So do you ever see yourself as someone who's claiming scalps, in a way? I mean, Charles Clark then resigned that evening. No, that were there others? That wasn't down to me. I might have helped a little bit, but it wasn't down to me. But you were always there. You must have felt a bit like death sometimes. Do you know what I mean? You're, you're waiting around waiting for them to come out to shout at them before everyone else knows they're about to lose their job. John Reid said to me, Paul, I always know when I'm in the shit, you're outside my front door. And it was true. But again, John was a brilliant politician in that I always remember a time I'd gone round, I don't know, I don't know whether John had done something one day and we needed a clip out of him. And I was straight round because he lived just round the corner from Parliament. I was outside his house with the camera crew. And all of a sudden his close protection officers drew up and they went, Paul, can we have a word? So I walked over and I said, John wants to know what you want because he's going to dinner with his wife and he's in his dinner suit and if he's got to respond, he'll change out of his dinner suit in a normal <laughs> suit, come out and do your clip and then go. I said, I'll tell you it's about this. Because I thought, well, if I don't tell him what it is, I'm not going to get anything. So anyway, the post protection officer comes back and he says, uh, yeah, he'll just get, he's just getting changed into a normal suit. He'll be out, but he can't, he can't give you long because he's got to go to this dinner. I said, okay, fine. So John was what you'd call a sensible politician in that he knew that he'd going to have to respond at some point, so he might as well do it now. Yeah, but he's, he's managing that news, isn't he? You, you need to ask him a difficult question. He doesn't want to be in a dinner suit. 
so he's managing it. So it's it's a manipulation of what is really happening. What's really happening is he's going somewhere in his dinner suit, but that won't make the news. No, it would have gone. It would have made the news if he'd gone somewhere in his dinner suit. But the trouble is, he looked the image he wanted to look. Mm. Which, if I'm going to get the clip, and I need the clip for the news base, I'm prepared to live with that. Well, I don't know. I suppose the classic one is um, Tony Blair holding the mug with his kids on it. Because the public noticed that they were being manipulated. That's but, when it all falls down, isn't it? But the whole of Westminster News is managed to a certain extent. Politics is different from any other form of news. Because you are relying on people telling you things. Someone's got to tell you something. The biggest story that everyone ever missed was John Major's alleged affair. Mm. With Ebuena. No one knew about that. And it just showed you what a tight-knit community that Major must have had around him for no one to have known about that. Do you have the famous filing cabinet full of stories on people? No. no. You, has it I've all, used mine. It's all come out? Yeah. There's very, very little conspiracy around Westminster. There's an awful lot of cock-up, but there's very little conspiracy. So chauffeurs is one source? Chauffeurs and coppers was the other source. Mm. The close protection officers... Like, with chauffeurs, people, ministers, forgot they were there. I think they thought the cars were driving themselves. Some of these people go out, they go to late-night parties, the chauffeurs don't get home till very late, they get a bit fed up, they're all talking amongst themselves. A conversation that happened in the back of the car will come out. Mm. I mean, you mentioned a parallel between the White House and Downing Street before. It's impossible to imagine that the president's chauffeur wouldn't be signing an NDA, isn't it? And yet in the UK, is it really that ramshackle that the person who's driving the top ministers... They probably signed NDAs, but the truth is they're probably... They're only normal people. Yeah. And, like, if you're sitting down having a cup of tea with them, they won't tell you a whole story, but they might point you in the right direction. Sitting down and having a cup of tea, that's interesting because that's something that a lot of people moving into the media now do not have the time to do or think they don't. The idea of going out making contacts with someone who's like a chauffeur for a politician, they'll say, no, if you want the gossip of what's going on inside Westminster, get on Twitter, wait for someone to DM you. Absolute rubbish. I recently did a chat to some American students. We were talking and I said... What's the most important thing you think about journalism? And they were all going Twitter, Facebook, all kinds of new media. And I went, and we went on for about 10 minutes. And I went, you're forgetting something. And they've all looked at me, what? I said, talk to people. People tell you stories that aren't going to be on Twitter, aren't going to be on Facebook, and aren't going to be anywhere else in the news media. They're what you need. Because... If it's on Twitter, it's old anyway. Build relationships with people. This is where, because the media has shrunk, and there are less people working in the media, I think, now than there probably ever used to be, especially in mainstream media anyway. Mm. I think people are finding that they haven't got, or they don't think they've got the time to spare. I was quite lucky in that when I was at working at Westminster, if there wasn't a big story going on, I could take myself over to one of the numerous cafes in the in Westminster, and just sit there and talk to people. Yeah, that's unthinkable now, isn't it? Talk for a producer on, you know, on a news channel, they're going to be having to be. crank out five stories a day. And but it shouldn't be. Mm. Perhaps this is why we're now getting a much more managed media, 
than we've ever had before. Like, I'll be truthful, I didn't like budgets or autumn statements or anything like that. It was far too managed. It was all choreographed and it was all about getting a six, seven, eight-minute package for the 10 o'clock news. You had to get a clip in with the SNP. You had to get a clip in with Plaid, even if they'd made no news that day. But it had to be there. It was formulaic. I'd much prefer a story where a minister says something stupid and we have to go chasing after him that day and try and actually get to the bottom of it, find out what actually is going on. That's news. The rest of it's just a drama. It's funny, isn't it, because, you know, the life of the country hangs in the balance sometimes, and yet the, the, the stories that kind of make the headlines, they are gossipy. I mean, think something like Plebgate, for example, you know, where Andrew Mitchell, who was a minister for the Tories, may or may not have called someone a pleb, went on for years. And that was really just sort of he said, she said nonsense, wasn't it? There's strange things like our present Prime Minister. I can remember going round to doing an interview with Theresa May at just after nine on a wet Thursday evening. I don't even know what the story was about. It could well have been a prison break or something like that. So she was Home Secretary then? She was Home Secretary at the time. So I get round at nine o'clock. I need this clip for the 10 o'clock news. I'm standing all set up, ready in the Home Office, and I get a message down. Um, oh, the Home Secretary can't come and do the interview at the moment. Her special advisor is still at dinner and she can't talk until her special advisor's back. And when you look at how the Brexit negotiations are going now, you think, I wonder if the special advisor's making the decisions or the Prime Minister is. Because at the time as Home Secretary, she didn't seem to be able to make the decisions without a um, special advisor standing there. Did you ever, though, encounter a real conviction politician who had gone somewhere. I mean, it's one thing sort of being a backbencher. Mo Molem. Without a doubt. I can remember, again, being at a Labour Party conference, and I think it was Blair and her fell out when Blair mentioned her in a speech and she got a standing ovation. Mm. And she wasn't even in the hall. Mo was one of the good people, without a doubt. But if you have to go back, you know, 20 years to find someone who is universally kind of loved... That's a bit of a damning indictment of the people who are in politics, isn't it? Yep. You're a bit of a news junkie, aren't you? You had you had BBC Parliament on when I came round to your house this afternoon. Uh, a little bit. I miss it a bit. Miss it a little bit. What do you miss? The exhilaration. That when you get a big story. Like, I did a few other stories apart from politics in that one story that affected me quite deeply was the Millie Dowler story. Mm-hmm. It's probably true to say that I broke that story for the BBC. Which part of it? The disappearance. It was a Friday and in politics we tend to work a four-day week, which is Monday to Thursday. And I was at home and my daughter came home from school at midday because school was breaking up. And she said, Dad, a girl from our school's disappeared. Mm. So I rang the office and said the 14-year-old girl's gone missing from Weybridge. Weybridge is quite up, up across the area. It's not the sort of thing that happens. Oh, yeah, 14-year-old girls go missing all the time. Don't worry about it. Okay. Seven o'clock at night, I got a phone call. That story you rung us in on the Met have just rung us. Um, could you nip to um, 
a local police station and do an interview with a copper and any chance of doing a reconstruction of the way she might have walked home with sending the camera crew to you now. That was the start. We led on that story for six weeks and I teamed up with a reporter called Clarence Mitchell and we led the bulletins for six weeks and we were there from the beginning to the end and the sad thing about it was that Millie was actually a mentor one of my daughter's mentors at school hmm. so it was quite that was quite close and quite effective but again and that's, I, I built a personal relationship up with the police on that story what about her we, parents because presumably part of it was being outside their house <sighs> yeah that I did find quite tricky and slightly intrusive but I mean it's not like a politician who stepped out of line is it they're in the public eye no. for reasons they do not want to be and yet at the same time they need the media to be there to get their message out I actually met Millie's mum in that we got exclusive first usage of the famous Millie ironing shots I don't know if you remember mm. them and because we'd built up a relationship with the police that were doing the investigation and that we were the one team that stayed at ITN and Sky both kept bussing in sort of their high profile reporters and producers whereas Clarence and myself stuck with it the story from day one so we had a relationship built up within the local area and being local it helped but Millie's mum wouldn't let the tape that she had out of her hand so we actually took an edit suite to a local police station and Millie, Millie's mum brought the tape in and we copied it there and then. Wouldn't it let it out of her hand because it was, it was a memory the, she had of her daughter? It was the last memories she had of her daughter. Yeah, that's such a difficult thing to negotiate, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I must admit, when they found Millie's body and we were all there, it was the only time I've ever cried on a story. But that was because my daughter was virtually the same age and mm. Millie had been a mentor. And it just, I, I vowed I'd never get as close to a story ever again. And that compassion is sometimes what's missing, isn't it, when people try and do the gobby doorstep, isn't it? It's, it actually, it's, it's, if people are going through a very difficult emotional time, even if they're senior politicians... You've, you've got, got to, to judge when, it. You've got to know when to stop. You've got to know when to stop. Um, Which is when? Is it people's personal lives? Is that the thing that's... No. No, because if, if you're in the public eye... You, all right, there's certain... Like, illness and stuff like that, you wouldn't go into. But... To be quite... If they've got caught playing away from home and they've got a wife and two kids at home, and they're in the public eye, that's... Sorry. You're in the public eye. You put yourself there. So if you were still on the beat now, you'd be standing outside Boris's home, would you, shouting at him? I've done that before. <laughs> I've done that before. I could, I could actually remember being outside Boris's house many years ago when I think it was his affair with Pe- Petronella Wyatt mm. came to the... We were all out there and there was a gaggle of us. It was the one when he leapt over the back fence and then came jogging in through the front door. And a young lady, or a young mum, shouted across the road to us push, while she was pushing her pram, why don't you leave him alone? I said, because he's married and got two kids and has been shagging someone else. That's why. 
he put himself up there. You know, Boris, is, Boris has never done anything that he didn't mean to do. So he's, he's not the clown that he likes to make out he is. I can remember a story with Boris. I think it was his second go at being like the mayor when I was with a camp. We'd been sent to spend a day with Boris, walking around London virtually. And we were nearing the end of the day and my cameraman was really tired. Those cameras are heavy. So he said, can I take the camera down? I said, yeah, we've got enough. We've got plenty. We just walked to the end of the road, it'll be fine. We've turned the corner and we've come into a big council estate. And Boris just turned to me and he said, do people really live like this? And I looked at the cameraman and the cameraman just shook his head. And I thought, yeah, he done me again, Boris. You know that we didn't have the camera running. Mm. So Boris has never said anything he doesn't mean to say. But, but those are the minutes you're looking out for. Those are the minutes you wish you had the camera running. That's the one I kicked myself all the way home for. <laughs> We've said it now. <laughs> but, you know, you win some, you lose some. You, you're not going to win everything. So were you always is the trick to always, what, keep the mic on, even when you say it's off? Keep the camera on, even when you say it's not? Just in No, case? You, you never trick, you, I'd never trick anyone and say the camera's off when it's on. But you could argue in politics it's fair game. It's those off-the-record no, moments. No, no, that's not fair. Well, there was the it's, bit, wasn't there, with Ken Livingston and Boris Johnson having an argument in the lift at LBC. Do you remember that? Yeah, but no one had said the microphone was off. No, no one said there was a microphone at all. Right. Yeah. So that's fair enough. Yeah. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. What about the politicians that don't make such a good account of themselves on camera? You know, Gordon Brown followed Tony Blair. I felt sorry for Gordon because I didn't think Gordon could control his temper. I can remember being in Downing Street with Nick Robinson and Nick had been in the room doing the interview with Gordon. When Gordon stormed out, I can't remember the precise words 
but I think it was something about Nick's parentage. Wow. <laughs> because as far been, as he didn't have any. Because he'd, yes. <laughs> because he'd been irked by a question. He'd been irked. And I, I sort of waited and Nick came out and Brown eventually went back in to do the next interview. I said, Nick, I said, um, I think you upset him. And he went, yeah, I think I probably did. But Brown couldn't control himself. But he knew enough to get out of the room before it exploded. I've seen a few of them do it. Cameron once exploded in Afghanistan. Not to me, but to someone that told me about it. We'd all gone out there on a trip. Cameron was supposed to go up to the front line with a helicopter. One of the camera crews was going to go up with him, get a few shots, come back. They'd make it on every news piece in the country. Unfortunately, there'd been a kidnapping of a British soldier at the time, so all the helicopters were out looking for him. And Cameron got the ump because he didn't have a camera to go up the front line. But his minders told him it wasn't going to happen, and that was that. I mean, that's an interesting one, isn't it, going to a war zone? Because then you really are... Yes, you're reporting on something that happened, and, and yes, all media is managed to an extent, but that, that's the stuff that gets looked back on in the future as, as propaganda of the time, isn't you're it? You're in a total bubble. The only chance you've got is on the, st- on the plane on the way home. And it's not one for the producers, it's one for the correspondents. But on the plane on the way home, when Cameron comes back and decides to chat to people, and he's a bit knackered, you might get a story out of that. The rest of it's propaganda. Do you think the fact that you talk in a more earthy way the fact that your background is clearly not you know you didn't go to Eton do you think that helped yeah without a doubt why I think they felt perhaps they couldn't bullshit me quite as easily perhaps it was a bit too I was a bit too straight for a lot of them I was certainly a bit too straight for a lot of the BBC and it took a long time for the BBC to start taking the shouts seriously and it wasn't until sort of Andy Marr and Nick Robinson came along that we started using them. Oh, so you, for years you'd been shouting at politicians oh, and they yeah, haven't been on the news. Ch- yeah, <laughs> but like, I think Andy took the deferentialness away from... We've only got to watch Mara on Sunday to see that he's taken the deferentialness away from that a lot now, whereas when it was Frost, it was a lot more deferential. And actually that's the trend that goes on, isn't it, with the, the sort of current, slightly younger generation of political correspondents coming through, people like Chris Mason, that, that informality. Chris oh, Chris is brilliant. But again, Chris has got a regional voice, mm. and it works. But the, the informality of it, it's getting less and less deferential. What was the politician that said, we work for you? Well, then they're answerable to you. They're answerable to us. Do you think it's a problem that there aren't too many people in the BBC, for example, who sound like you? Yes. Is the BBC racist or sexist? Absolutely not. Does it discriminate against class? Absolutely. You look at the way the BBC employs people on work experience, or certainly did. I don't know many people that came from the background that I came from that could do a year's work experience, not get paid and not know whether they got a job at the end of it. Mm. And News 24 gave me my big breaks. But in a way, it's worse than the way that news is done in that you used to be able to craft a piece for the one o'clock, the six o'clock, or as it was in the old days, the nine o'clock news. Now you're looking for a story for the next 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how long 
you can maintain a one o'clock, a six o'clock and a ten o'clock news bulletin rather than just opting into the news channel because I'm not sure whether they can afford to do it and also whether the story is so out of date by the time it gets to the bulletin that like I've, I've, I've known people hold, thing, hold things back from the news channel so it's got something fresh for the bulletin. Mm. That Which, seems nuts now, doesn't it? I'm sure it still happens today. One of the stories that I do remember from the early days of the news channel in that um, Hugh Edwards was then the political editor of um, the BBC News 24. and But they'd asked Hugh to do a package for the nine o'clock news so he wasn't working for the news channel at that time. And I, I was at, in the office and I just took a phone call from this guy who didn't actually say who he was and said, uh, can I speak to Hugh Edwards, please? I don't really understand why, but the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. And I said, he's not here at the moment. Can I help? I, I really do need to speak to him. This was just a cold call that came in? Cold call that came into the office. And I just felt, I've got to go and get Hugh. Hugh's not going to be happy, but I've got to go and get him. We need to get, he needs to talk to this person. So I walked out of the edit suite, Hugh's halfway through the edit for the nine o'clock news. And I said, Hugh, it's a phone call. Oh, not now, not now. I said, no, Hugh, you need to take this call. I don't know why you need to take it, but you need to take it. So it was just instinct? Did the caller sound... It was literally that the hairs on the back of my neck had stood on end. But what, I mean, did the caller sound emotional or... Nope. Urgent, but I'd never, and I'd never heard this voice before. Mm -hmm. Hugh came off the phone and said, get me to the news, news camera now. We need to go on air. And it was the start of the Ron Davis story. Remind me. When he caught, caught um, allegedly on Clapham Common in a compromising position, I believe. Mm -hmm. And he was a minister? He was a minister at the time. I think he was Welsh. I think he was Secretary of State for Wales at the time. I must say, when you said Ron Davis, the two words that flashed into my head were sex and Welsh. That's all I could remember. <laughs> that was the story. <laughs> yeah. That's and what I it gets distilled down to, isn't yeah. it? So was he calling with a mea culpa then? Yes. Right. He was calling Before the to was published explain it. to Hugh yeah. what had actually happened. Because Hugh was, as you know, Welsh, and I think, there was, I think they knew each other. Mm -hmm. And again, it was probably a personal relationship thing. But to this day, I still don't understand why the hairs on the back of my head stood up on it. But they did. When you watched other people trying to do what you did so well, what were they getting wrong? They didn't have the instinct. I think there is a major problem with correspondents doing shouts. They have got to have the patronage of those politicians. I actually upset Cameron once. We were, again, another one at conference. Cameron had sent Samantha to watch the Tories play the journalists at the football match. He'd sent her with one of the minders that always went everywhere. And I just thought I'd be a little bit cheeky. So at half-time, the Tories, I think, were losing 5-0 to the journalists at the time. And also Cameron wasn't doing very well in the polls either for the government. So I just sidled up to Cameron's wife and I said, um, so what do you think then? So she said, um, 
Well, we're not doing very well at the moment. Maybe we'll do better in the second half. <laughs> it's quite nice. It's useful for a package that yeah. night. <laughs> I met Cameron the week after conference. He went absolutely potty at me. Because his wife wasn't on official duty? He reckons she was quoted out of context. I said, no, David, we said she was at a football match and we said she was commenting on the score of the game. I said, anyway, she's over 21. She should know what she's doing. But did he feel that you'd breached uh, an unwritten rule there? Yeah. She was at a public event with government minders. If they can't look after her, that's their fault. Paul Lambert, a.k.a. Gobby. And if you enjoyed that interview, you can find more, much more, uh, along with some markedly less media-centric trends and items, on my podcast, The Modern Man. M-A-N-N. Search for it on your podcast app of choice. I've been Ollie Mann. The producer of all that you've heard today was Matt Hill. The media podcast is a PPM production and we'll be back very soon with The Normal Show. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.